Welcome back to Psychic Run. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. I want to thank everyone for listening. We really appreciate all the support and all the love you guys have shown from all over the world. And if you really want to show us some more love, give us five stars on whatever platform you listen to us on. And you can always uh, show some support by becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Or if you just want to give a one-time donation, you can Venmo us. As always, I'll put the links down below. Now this week, we are continuing our series on 60s, 70s counterculture with Timothy Leary. Leary was a prominent psychologist whose journey with psychedelics made him an enemy of the President of the United States and eventually a fugitive. Now, many consider Leary to be a narcissist. Narcissists cut a wide, charismatic figure. The most benign type may be a charismatic leader with an excess of charm, whose only vice may be an inflated amount of self-interest. In stark contrast are individuals with narcissistic personality disorder, whose grandiosity soars to such heights that they are easily angered when they don't receive the attention and admiration that they consider their birthright. Bonafide narcissists may also have a tendency to disregard other people's feelings and take advantage of others to get what they want. As with many characteristics, narcissism can be viewed as a spectrum. Some people are lower on the spectrum and others are higher, with many landing somewhere in the middle. Out-and-out narcissists exhibit the highest levels of self-flattery. It's easy to slap the narcissist label on someone who spends a bit too much time talking about themselves or never seems to doubt anything that they did. But pathologically narcissistic people are relatively rare, an estimated 1% of the population. Narcissism, too, is much more complex than it may seem. It's different from a surplus of self-esteem and encompasses a hunger for appreciation, a sense of specialness, and a lack of empathy, along with other attributes that can prove damaging in relationships. Interestingly, in addition to thinking that they are better and more deserving than others, Research suggests that highly narcissistic people often admit that they are much more self-centered. The hallmarks of narcissistic personality disorder are grandiosity, a lack of empathy for others, and a need for admiration. People with this condition are frequently described as arrogant, self-centered, manipulative, and demanding. They may also concentrate on grandiose fantasies, i.e. their success, their beauty, or their brilliance and they may be convinced that they deserve special treatment, i.e. those entitled parent stories that you find on Reddit. These characteristics typically begin in early adulthood and must be consistently evident in multiple contexts, such as work and in their relationships. People with narcissistic personality disorder believe they are superior or special and often try to associate with other people they believe are unique or gifted as they are. This association enhances their self-esteem, which is typically quite fragile underneath the surface. Individuals with narcissistic personality disorder seek excessive admiration and attention in order to know that others think highly of them. Individuals with the disorder have difficulty tolerating criticism or defeat and may be left feeling humiliated or empty when they experience an injury in the form of criticisms or rejection. Narcissist is indicative, narcissistic personality disorder, excuse me, 
is indicative of five or more of the following symptoms. They exaggerate their own importance, are preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, beauty, intelligence, or the ideal romance. They believe that he or she have special or special or deserve special considerations, require constant attention and admiration from others, believe they can only be understood by others on their level, have unreasonable expectations of the special uh, considerations and treatment they believe they should have. They take advantage of others to reach their own goals. They disregard the feelings of others or lack empathy and are often envious of others or believe that other people are envious of them and they show arrogant behavior and attitudes. 50 to 75% of people diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder are actually male. Additionally, it is common for many adolescents to display the characteristics that we just listed this does not indicate that they will later become narcissists or develop narcissistic personality disorder. Many narcissists suffer from narcissistic entitlement, which refers to a narcissist's belief that one's importance, superiority, or uniqueness should result in getting special treatments and receiving more resources than others. For example, individuals high in narcissistic entitlement think that they should get more respect, more money, and more credit for doing the exact same work as everyone else. Narcissistic entitlement also includes a willingness to demand this special treatment or extra resources. Special treatment can include a wide range of things, but in general refers to an expectation of treatment that is unique and usually better from how other people are treated. For example, an individual with high levels of narcissistic entitlement might demand the best seat at a restaurant or not to have to wait in line while everyone else does. They might demand to always be called sir or doctor. They might refuse to allow other individuals to be critical or challenging of their thoughts or ideas. And that's something that they may not reciprocate to others. Meaning someone may try to give them constructive criticism at the job. They'll get upset and storm off. Yet they will always put their two cents in on someone else's work. Narcissistic entitlement is traditionally measured with a short subscale of the Narcissistic Personality Inventory that was proposed by Robert Raskin and Howard Perry in 1988. This scale has proven, proven to predict narcissistic behavior very well, but also lacks in statistical reliability. As a result, W.K. Campbell, Angelica Mbonacci, and Jeremy Shelton, Julie Exeline, and Brad Bushman have created another standalone means of scaling entitlement that is much more reliable. Now, Timothy Leary was born on October 22nd, 1920 in Springfield, Massachusetts to an Irish Catholic household. He went on to attend several schools before graduating from the University of California at Berkeley. Working there as an assistant professor until 1955, Leary also developed a groundbreaking monograph that was published in 1957. This explored interpersonal relationships using a complex model system. Yet Leary and his two children suffered great personal loss during this period when his first wife committed suicide. He subsequently worked as the director of the Kaiser Foundation and then accepted a lecturing position at Harvard University in 1959. 
After taking mushrooms while in Carvanaca, Mexico, Leary conducted behavioral experiments with cyclobin, an active ingredient of the fungi that was allowed for use in research. In 1960, promising psychologists at Harvard, Leary and Richard Alpert, who would later become known as the spiritual guru Ram Dass, began to explore the effects of the psychotropic substance on human mind. They reasoned that psychology is the study of the mind, including its relationship to the brain, body, and environment. Psychology, they argued, has a legitimate interest in how cognition, perception, and emotion are affected by mind-altering substances. At the time, the possible dangers of researching such substances were not well known, and they, as they became in subsequent decades. Shortly after Larry's arrival at Harvard, he and Albert started the Harvard Cyclobin Project. Cyclobin is a hallucinogen which naturally occurs in certain species of mushrooms. Leary and Albert sought to document its effect on human consciousness by administering it to volunteer subjects and recording their real-time descriptions of the experience. The time of Leary and Albert's research at Harvard, neither LSD or cyclobin were illegal in the United States. By 1962, various faculty members and administrators at Harvard were concerned about the safety of Leary and Alpert's research subjects and critiqued the rigor of their unorthodox methodology. In particular, the researchers conducted their investigation when they were also high on cyclopid. Leary and Alpert's colleagues challenged the scientific merit of their research as well as the seemingly cavalier attitude with which they carried it out meaning their poorly controlled conditions and non-random selection of subjects. I especially would take issue with the fact that they were also using the drugs that they were testing on the subjects, but that's something else. Editorials printed in the Harvard Crimson accused Alpert and Leary of not merely researching the psychotropic drugs, but actively promoting their use. Leary and Alpert insisted on the scientific purpose of their endeavors and agreed to policies intended to protect their subjects, including a prohibition on participation by undergraduate students. Initially, Leary and Alpert only used volunteers, if not fully informed, but still volunteers, graduate students and their research. However, in the spring of 1963, Harvard was forced to dismiss Alpert after he administered cyclobin to an undergraduate student off campus. Leary was also fired and the Harvard Cyclobin Project came to an end. Discredited by their lack of scientific rigor and failure to observe the established research protocols, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were both banished from academia, but that was far from the end of their lives. Their research and their studies led them first to Zatiano, Mexico, and then to Antigua, and finally back to Cambridge. But at that point, there were $50,000 in debt. But then they met Peggy Hitchcock, who Leary had introduced to LSD the year before and had had a brief affair. She asked her brother, Billy Hitchcock, and if you, if you listened last week, you would recognize that these are the Mellon Hitchcocks of the Carnegie Mellon family, extraordinarily wealthy people. She asked her brother, Billy, if anyone was staying at their boarded up mansion, and he said no. So Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary moved into the mansion for only a dollar a year. Along with their followers, K. 
became a rotating cast of celebrities. There were extremely well-known artists. Jazz musicians like Charles Mingus and Maynard Ferguson tested their improvisational skills while playing bass and trumpet on the roof. Allen Ginsberg and his lover Pete Ornofsky were many times seen nude running around the ground, and members of Warhol's factory drove up when they needed a break from the amphetamine philosophy of New York City. Psychologists both pop and proper, such as Alan Watts and Humphrey Osmond and R.D. Lang, debated theory. But this experiment in mystical living wasn't just an endless party. The ringleaders were still academics, and they plunged deep into uncharted intellectual terrain, to be sure, but compelling nonetheless. Leary, Alpert, and their friend Metzner were looking for insight into the ultimate nature of reality to systemize and program the psychedelic experience to reach that place of insight consistently. To that end, Leary, Alpert, and Metzner published the journal, The Psychedelic Review held workshops on psychedelics twice a month and when they were sober and wrote The Psychedelic Experience in 1964, a trip manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But as the months passed, the Millbrook Estate started to lose its scientific bearing. The scene was growing wilder and wilder as word got out to colleges all over the East Coast and the residents of Dutchess County grew even more suspicious. Students at the nearby All-Women's Bennett College which show, were shown close-ups of Leary at the start of each term, with administrators warning them that fraternizing with this man would mean instant expulsion. For Leary and his followers, the Buddhist and Taoist insight that kept his hold by about the fifth acid trip meant nothing and but the most magical of paradises. And that magical paradise could not last forever, as creeping fears of an eminent bus overtook the residents. Those fears were realized at about 2 a.m. on Sunday, April 17, 1966, when the newly appointed assistant district attorney, G. Gordon Liddy. Yeah, that G. Gordon Liddy. The G. Gordon Liddy that became a fixer for Nixon. The G. Gordon Liddy, whose favorite party trick was putting cigarettes out on himself led a nighttime raid of the Millbrook estate. Search warrant in hand, a climax that came to a climax during after two months of surveillance. The scene at Millbrook broke up after, after that raid and people went their varying ways. Leary eventually ended up in Laguna Beach with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, a spiritual group that used international drug trafficking to fund their mission of bringing spiritual enlightenment to the masses through extremely low-cost LSD. The founders of the group look up to Larry's views on drug use and welcomed him to their commune like as to their commune-like neighborhood, excuse me, as a spiritual leader. However, Larry quickly began to show his true color. The Brotherhood was dedicated to individual spiritual enlightenment, not to be confused with the free love free drug culture of many of the communes of the time. Most members were happily married with children, and Leary hit on many of their wives behind their backs. Leary announced a run for president while he was in Laguna, something that was opposed to his supposed Taoist beliefs of the time. This move on behalf of the media-hungry Leary brought unwarranted attention on the Brotherhood, who until that time 
had been flying under the radar of federal law enforcement. The Brotherhood store, the Mystic Arts, was even firebombed around this time. The Brotherhood decided it was time to move out of Laguna, and shortly after, the chief of police pulled Larry over and found two partial marijuana cigarettes in his car. Larry was arrested, and on January 21, 1970, he received a 10-year sentence for the possession of the two marijuana cigarettes and was given a further 10 years while in custody for a previous marijuana arrest in 1965, with a total of 20 years to be served consecutively. When Leary arrived in prison, he was given psychological tests that were used to assign inmates to appropriate work details. Having designed some of the tests himself, including the Leary Interpersonal Behavior Test, Leary answered them in such a way that he was confident of getting a placement in a low security prison. He was able to get himself a position in the gardening department. As a result of his assignment to work as a gardener, he was in the perfect position to break out. Leary received several visits from the Brotherhood members in which they used the information that he gave them about the prison design to help them create an escape plan. However, while planning his escape, the leader of the Brotherhood, John Riggs, OD'd on a bad batch of cyclobin. The Brotherhood decided in the wake of the death to farm the job out to the Weather Underground, a radical anti-war group that bombed several recruitment centers. The Brotherhood paid the Underground a reported $20,000. Now the reason I say this is reported is because several still living members of the Brotherhood say it was actually $17,000 and that the underground inflated the amount for publicity reasons. In September 1970, he escaped by simply climbing a fence at the minimum security prison during the night. Members of the underground were waiting nearby in a getaway car. They smuggled Larry and his then wife Rosemary to a safe house where everyone agreed it was best for the two to split up. The weatherman snuck him into Algeria. The plan was to hole up with the with Eldris Cleaver, an expatriated Black Panther leader who had an arrangement with the Algerian government. The Panthers had been given their own embassy due to what the Algerian government felt was the unjust treatment of Blacks by the United States. However, as soon as Larry arrived, he started causing trouble for the Panthers. He called multiple people from his circle and told them where he was. He was immediately inundated with visitors from the States, the majority of whom brought drugs with them. This was a problem for two reasons. First, the Panthers were staunchly, were staunchly anti-drug. And secondly, the possession of drugs was punishable by death in Algeria. The constant attention forced the Panthers to try and find an alternative for fear it could cause their deal with the Algerian government to be nullified. They were able to make a deal with the Afghan government that Larry would be granted asylum if he recorded an anti-drug PSA for them. So, the Panthers went about sneaking Leary into Afghanistan through Egypt, but Leary sabotaged the plan. They flew from Algeria to Egypt, and Leary was seated next to an American, who unbeknownst to him was a reporter. Leary spent the whole flight bragging to a stranger about his prison break and subsequent plan to trick the Afghan government with a lame PSA. The reporter did what all reporters do and immediately called the story in as soon as he landed in Egypt. 
between the Egyptian government's fear of souring relations with the United States by harboring one of their most wanted fugitives and Leary's insistence that they stop at the Great Pyramids to sightsee, the group ended up being picked up by Egyptian officials on their sightseeing trip and deported back to Algeria. At the end of their rope, and fearing for their safety due to the publicity Leary was garnering and the increased scrutiny it caused the Algerian government, the Panthers put Leary on lockdown to prevent him from talking to the press and arranging for any more of his friends to smuggle him drugs. Leary, however, would tell people that he was being held for ransom by spiteful Panthers who just could not handle his success. Leary escaped and with the help of a French criminal, made his way to Switzerland. Leary only had to sign the rights to all of his future books to the man in exchange for his help and connections. At first, Switzerland was great for Leary. He met a Swiss-born British socialite named Joanna Harcourt Smith and soon was involved in a torrid affair. Meanwhile, however, the U.S. government was pressuring the Swiss government. So, they jailed Leary, but still, did not extradite him back to the U.S. And when I say they jailed him, I mean they gave him five-course meals and wine in his cell. Eventually, his socialite girlfriend broke him out, or basically just bribed the guard so he could walk out the front door, and they traveled to Vienna, Beirut, and finally ended up in Kabul, Afghanistan in 1972. Afghanistan had no extradition treaty with the United States, but... The structure of the treaty did not apply to American airliners. That interpretation of the law was used by American authorities to intercept Leary. Before Leary could deplane, he was arrested by an agent of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, which you now know as the DEA. At a stopover in the United Kingdom, Leary was as Leary was being flown back to the U.S., he requested political asylum from the British government, but they quite obviously wanted nothing to do with Leary. Facing a total of 95 years in prison, he was held on $5 million bail, which conflated for... Um, for inflation in 2006 dollars is 21.5 million dollars all because he was labeled the most dangerous man in america by richard nixon at the time it was the largest bail on a private citizen in the history of the united states leary hired criminal defense attorney bruce margolian leary mostly directed his own defense which proved to be completely unsuccessful considering the jury convicted him after less than two hours of deliberation. Now, he was charged with conspiracy charges for helping the Brotherhood um, smuggle drugs, but those charges were dropped for lack of evidence. And just to give you an idea of how much they were trying to put on Leary, the Brotherhood's extensive smuggling ring was credited entirely to him. The media called the Brotherhood his drug cult. He was even credited as being the owner of their mystic art store and was credited with incorporating them as a religion. Those things, the opening of the store, the incorporating of the Brotherhood as a religion, all happened before he ever even stepped foot in California. So it was just very indicative of one, 
how they saw hippies as these dirty, lazy people who just could not do things for themselves and their want to really, really put as much on Larry as possible. To the day of his death, he never, ever said anything deterring the idea that the brotherhood was all his doing. So that did cause rifts with some people. Um, now, he received five years for his prison escape, and that was added to his original 10-year sentence. However, the added-on 10-year sentence was not actually was not actually imposed upon him. In 73, he was sent to Folsom Prison in California and put in solitary confinement. While at Folsom, once he got out of solitary, he was placed in the cell next to Charles Manson. And though they could not see each other, they talked constantly. In their discussions, Manson was shocked and found it very difficult to understand why Leary had dosed people without trying to control them. At one point, Manson said to Larry that they took him off the streets so that he could continue his work. Leary pretended to cooperate with the FBI's investigation into the Weather Underground and its radical attorneys by giving them information they already had or which he thought was inconsequential. In response, the FBI gave him the code name Charlie Thrush, and in a 1974 news conference, Alan Gainsbourg his former friend Ram Doss or Richard Alpert, and Leary's own son Jack denounced him, calling him an informant, a liar, and a paranoid schizophrenic. Leary was released from prison on April 21, 1976 by Governor Jerry Brown. After briefly relocating to San Diego, he took up residence in Laurel Canyon and continued to write books and appear as a lecturer. He married filmmaker Barbara Blum in 1978, who was also known as Barbara Chase and was the sister of the actress Tanya Roberts. Leary adopted Blum's son, Zachary, and raised him as his own. During this period, Leary took on several godchildren, including actress Winona Ryder. Leary began to foster a absolutely improbable and unforeseeable friendship with G. Gordon Liddy the Watergate burglar and turned conservative radio talk show host. They toured the lecture circuit in 1982 as ex-cons debating a range of social and financial issues, including gay rights, abortion, welfare, and the environment. Leary genuinely espoused left-wing views while Liddy confirmed the right, his right-wing stance on things. The tour generated massive publicity and a lot of money for both. In January of 1995, Larry was diagnosed with inoperable prostate cancer. He notified Ram Dass and other old friends and began the process of directed dying, which he called designer dying. Larry did not reveal the condition to the press, but did so after the death of Jerry Garcia that August. Larry and Ram Dass reunited before his death in May of 1996 and reconciled. Now that's it for the story of Timothy Leary, but join us in two weeks when we discuss the Weather Underground, one of America's first domestic terror organizations. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>